Hey everybody, and welcome to Enjoy the View. I'm Alex, and today on our panel we have Tessa. Hello. And our special guest for this episode is Ben. Ben is a technical writer and works for a company that specializes in remote team collaboration software. Hello, Ben. Saluton. So, um, Tessa. Well, we're just going to ignore that? What was that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was just going to... I figured he's more in- intelligent than I am and he was using some fancy word. Ben, what was that? I was baiting you for a question there. So, Saluton is the a standard greeting in Esperanto because I'm a nerd. It's like a made-up language, right? It is a constructed language, yes. So, is it constructed how? Like, I don't... I think it's like Klingon, but for language nerds. Yeah. I mean, oh, this, okay, is, this is older than Klingon, but. Got it. Got it. Yeah, that makes more sense. All right. All right. So it's, it's Klingon, but for like normal people. I guess. Origins <laughs> in the late 1800s. It was a language. I think it was created in order to bridge other languages together. So it's meant to be easy to learn no matter what language you speak. Interesting. I think. Oh, Okay. I've heard of Esperanto before, but I don't know that I've ever really dug into it very much. So that's super interesting. Moving right along. Tessa, have you ever worked with a technical writer before? Yeah, actually, my first job, I think I've mentioned this on the show before, my first full-time job as an engineer, I worked at a place with a technical writing team. They had a manager for their team, and then there were two technical writers. And I think it was really great because it forced us to regularly document things in a way that had more context than you might naturally include if you were only writing it for the sake of your team. Because with each release, we had to write like a detailed log about what we were adding or changing, maybe include screenshots so that the technical writers would be able to understand and then translate those into both public release notes and updates to our documentation. And then if things weren't clear, they would come by and either give us notes on how to do better next time and or ask us questions because there were things that maybe were good enough for the release notes, but not clear enough to write documentation on. Wow. Okay. Before my current job, I have never worked with technical writers before. So I have not been in situations where I've had technical writers. I've also worked with engineers who used to be technical writers. And that's also great because they have a lot of like explanatory comments and documentation about their code. That makes it nicer to read. Yeah, that sounds handy. So... Ben, you're writing technical documentation. You're writing, you're a technical writer, I suppose. Do you write a lot of technical documentation? How did you get into technical documentation and technical writing? Yeah, well, I started, let's see, before I was a technical writer, to bring you on the journey with me here, my whole, you know, post-college career, uh, essentially, I've been a technical troubleshooter in different scenarios. So I worked in operations centers, doing a lot of software troubleshooting and a lot of network troubleshooting, you know, basically reacting to things that broke and then opening tickets and trying to fix these things with other people. After doing that for quite a few years, I decided I wanted to do something a little bit more creative and technical writing sounded creative to me at the time. And I suppose we'll get into whether or not it, it is. So I found a job in Florida doing technical writing and I did a whole bunch of interviewing and I got the job. So I essentially just decided I would try this and I'm still doing it today. That was back in 2012. 
I find it interesting that you came from like a very like hands-on fixing things background and moved into writing about how things work. Yeah, I've always been a computer guy, you know, as my family would say. I went to college for information systems, which at the time was kind of 50% business, 50% putting together computers and just starting to wet our with our feet a bit with, with networking at the time. This is back when like Novell was a big thing. Just kind of landed in a job doing network troubleshooting with a friend and followed that for a while. And, you know, I, I was pretty good at troubleshooting things. And so, I don't know, decided I would maybe not like to troubleshoot things so much, but it might be fun to kind of teach about technical things, translate technical speak into something that was more digestible by by the user. So I don't know. I just kind of checked out what technical writing was all about and landed this job and learned a lot more on the job, obviously, than from what I could figure out on my own and just enjoyed it a lot. So here I am. Yeah. You got tired of fixing things for people and were like, look, I'm going to write this down for you. You need to follow my directions. When you're troubleshooting things, especially in an operations center environment, as I said before, it's kind of like things break and you have to fix them quickly most of the time. So there's a lot of pressure there when you're you know, responsible for making sure systems are running or software is doing its thing. Or you know, uh, if somebody's network connection breaks and they're losing thousands of dollars a minute kind of thing, there's pressure there to fix things quickly. Technical writing is not quite as time sensitive as that, I guess. So you get to learn about a thing, understand it, and then write something that is useful. So that appeals to me. Definitely. Cool. Now that you're doing like technical writing stuff, what is your day to day like? Like, are you just sitting there just writing constantly? Or is it like on a typewriter? uh, Yeah, on a typewriter. Clearly, that's how because that's how computers work. Yeah. What is your day to day sort of vaguely look like? Sure. So we use an intake form. So anybody that needs something written about a piece of the main product that the company makes, they'll be like, hey, we have this new feature coming out and we need this article on it or this set of articles. Or they'll be like, we need something written about this piece in order to explain it better kind of thing. So they'll fill out a form and that generates a JIRA ticket, which then goes into our backlog and on a regular schedule me and the team. So there's there's three people on the team, including, and not including the manager. So uh, we regularly review what's in the backlog, and then we you know, prioritize what needs to get done sooner, and then we kind of jump in on it. But as far as you know, kind of the tools and the processes we use, or I use, I'm definitely using a computer to write. <laughs> I, <laughs> I mean, I suppose I could write it on a typewriter and then, you know, scan it in and then do some OCR magic, and uh, it's a lot of work. We try to do as little jumping around as possible like that. So I write just in Markdown. I write an article. I paste it into Google Docs. Somebody else reviews it. And then eventually we translate that to the article on the website. That's the basic idea. To take a slight tangent here, I feel like this is kind of related to your past in troubleshooting. But I'm curious to hear more about both like the specific tools that you use every day for technical writing. And also, it seems like you like to use a lot of different kinds of like productivity 
and helper tools. Like, I don't know if that's a Ben thing because we had another Ben on the show that loves that kind of stuff. But yeah, I would love to hear more about it. So when I said before, I write things in Markdown, that was both true and a little bit of stretch, I guess. So I use a note-taking tool. I'm a Mac guy. So I put all my notes into Bear on the Mac, which is essentially Markdown that automatically syncs to iCloud. And then that shows up on my phone and on my other devices if I want to. So anytime I'm in a meeting or learning about a thing, I can cut and paste stuff into Bear and then kind of organize my thoughts in there. And then generally, we do our first drafts of a thing in a Google Doc. So I just have a Google Doc with a a template that I put together. You know, we write a thing in there. As we're writing, if we have questions, we talk to the subject matter expert for the particular thing that we're working on. Sometimes it's a developer. Sometimes it's, I don't know, maybe the, the product manager themselves. Anybody that knows a lot about the thing that we're writing about. So at some point, we get to a draft of that document, whether it's anywhere from a half a page to a couple pages long, usually. The team will do a peer review, and then we have other people look at the content before it kind of gets finalized and then converted to the its final form. But just to focus a little bit more on tools, I guess. So once we have the Google Doc draft, then it gets converted into Markdown. There is a plugin for Google Docs. I think it's like Docs to Markdown. It's nothing super fancy. Essentially, you click on a button and it it converts it to Markdown. And then I take that and I paste it into an actual Markdown editor, trying to remember the name of the one I use. Stack Edit is good for Markdown editing. It shows you a live preview of the content you're working on. I basically tweak the Markdown to make sure that it it looks okay in actual preview form. And then I paste it into our actual publishing platform. Most of the time we use readme.com as our publishing for our documents, our API documents. So I go into README, I paste it in there, I make sure that it looks okay in that version as well, and then essentially we publish it and then it goes live. I use some other tools, I guess, as far as putting things together. For images, I'm usually capturing things in Snagit on the Mac. That's pretty straightforward. Don't do too much with Snagit other than maybe cropping or you know doing some minor picture editing. And I have Pixelmator on the Mac as well. I'm using an old version of Pixelmator. It's essentially a a much more affordable Photoshop replacement. So that's if I want to do anything crazy, I'll throw it into into Pixelmator graphics-wise. As far as where we store all this content, we have a corporate Google account. So we're just using Google Drive. That's why we're also using Google Docs. So we throw all of our images in a a folder and all of our work-in-progress content, all these Google Docs are also in another folder and we organize stuff that way. So it's pretty simple and straightforward. I would imagine that like that part of it is a little bit more transient depending upon like company and stuff. Like if you had a company that was using OneDrive, you could do it there. If some if they were all in on Dropbox or something, you could easily do it through that as well. It's not a it's not necessarily that part of it is a little bit more flexible as to that's more like company infrastructure to a certain extent. Yeah. This process I'm describing is specific to this company that I'm at now. Previously, it was probably less organized. Generally, I've been either the only technical writer or maybe one of two technical writers at a company. That's just kind of how it goes sometimes. And so we use whatever tools we want and they don't necessarily match up amongst the team. You know, someone might be writing in Microsoft Word 
yuck, and someone might be writing a, <laughs> <laughs> in hey. a DOS-based text editor. You, you know, there's, I don't know, there's tools that are more attractive to depending on who's using the tool, I guess. And I heard you say, hey, Tessa, I'm prepared to defend my hate for Microsoft Word. <laughs> this is now a show about... Uh, opinions about editors we have reached the spicy stage (laughs) (laughs) oh you guys did a tools episode a couple weeks back we did yeah (laughs) yeah i just find these online document editors the options and stuff are sometimes hidden away or like the right click menus and stuff because it's in the browser they're not as convenient so that's really annoying i actually haven't used word in a while but i will i'll take powerpoint to my grave powerpoint has gotten better. I used it recently for something and I was pleasantly surprised by some of the options that it had, but it was still rough. So I'm right there with you. I feel like it's always been the same. For me, Keynote always crashes my computer and slides.com. I don't understand how people use that without like burning down the planet. It's so upsetting. I use use slides.com all the time. Of course you do. You know it. It's nice to have a, you know, local application on your machine for you know speed and knowing it inside out and being able to customize it and things like that i think of powerpoint i'm thinking like somewhere between like 1996 and 2005 as far as aesthetic you know lots of lots of word art with gradients and you know things like that but i don't know if if it works it works whatever tool works works best for you to get the job done great i just i've had a lot of things go wonky in in microsoft word so i try not to use it anymore. The one thing I will say is I haven't yet seen other like slide editors specifically, but maybe also just document editors in general that have like uh, flowchart builders, which PowerPoint and Word have built in. And so there are a lot of situations where I need something like that. And I don't want to custom drag a bunch of squares and arrows and stuff. And so I like that option specifically. And that was one of the things that I was trying to find when I was looking at other slide editors and getting frustrated about yeah it's it's nice if i don't know the less tools you have to accomplish a task that's that's also nice if you know if if the writer or the you know document editor that you're using also does good graphic stuff then you don't have to flip between things if you're just trying to get something done quickly use the tool you're most comfortable with is ultimately i think what it comes down to yeah well, speaking of comfort, then I was curious if you heard of Photopea or Photopea. I'm not sure how you say it. It's relatively new, but it's basically a one-to-one of Photoshop. Like even the shortcuts are the same, but in the browser, it's been like the hot topic on our YouTube over the summer. The blur and stuff doesn't look as good, but beyond that, it's kind of freaky how similar it is. You can even import Photoshop files, so... Yeah, might be something worth checking out if you haven't already. I hadn't heard of it. I'm yeah, I'm glancing at the website now. Obviously, it looks just like Photoshop at a glance. So interesting. It is great for making fast memes. I will just say. <laughs> okay, I admit, perhaps embarrassingly so, that I use you know like memegenerator.net or whatever the Google result is. If I type in you know Captain Picard meme, you know whatever I need to. Whenever I need to make a meme, it's usually I try to get it done in 30 seconds because someone somewhere, you know, my punchline is time sensitive. Someone will make a joke and I try to make a meme as fast as I can. So, But I am seeing on the file, supported file types for Photopea to support GIMP, which is another one worth mentioning, I guess, just because it's been around forever and it's free and it's Linux or Unix. Does Unix even exist anymore? 
Yeah, those seem to be the selling points of GIMP, all right. Yeah. GIMP got things done and it didn't cost anything. So, but it was also, you know, kind of clunky and very Linuxy. So there's trade-offs, I guess. Photoshop is so expensive. Even if you're paying monthly for it, it's it's still expensive. So unless you're making money as an artist or your company is paying for it, there's probably an alternative that's more affordable. Although apparently this still isn't widely known. Like if you subscribe to the photographer package, which is like Photoshop plus Lightroom, it's $10 a month. But if you subscribe to Photoshop by itself, it's $20 a month. So if you want to subscribe to Photoshop, definitely go for the photography package. Do you think there's a big photo is participating in that somehow like Canon or, or Nikon, you know, they're, they're kind of influencing Adobe to, to push that. Kodak's Revenge. Kodak's Revenge. <laughs> or Polaroids. That's a good Polaroid. question. I don't know. Polaroid's but Revenge. It, it was handy for me because that was right around the time that I was getting into photography. So I was like, perfect. I recently spent some time at Walt Disney World on vacation and I saw someone there, a youngster. So, you know, someone under 30, probably like you guys, who had a, it was a Polaroid camera, but... Or maybe, no, it was an Instagram branded camera. It was something between Instagram and Polaroid. Like it looked like an old Polaroid with the red button and the, you know, the kind of the pop. Maybe an Instax camera. Maybe. But it actually spit out, you know, a self-developing film that you could then flap around unnecessarily. Some of like the Polaroid stuff is actually coming back in style because like retro is always vogue. Hipsters. Well, I feel like it was like the impossible project was selling Polaroid stuff and then Polaroid went out of business and now they're still running again. So I don't know how that's working, but they are refurbishing their own old camera stock and rebranding it and reselling it as like special limited editions. Bringing this back to technology or keeping it within technology. I'm definitely a little bit older than y'all and maybe older than the the audience of the show a little bit. But when I was... 13, my dad brought home a digital camera, which we had never heard of before at the time. And it shot, oh gosh, it was probably 256 by 256, 16, you know, 16 shades of gray images. And it was this <laughs> this big, heavy thing. We were told, you know, do not drop it because it was so expensive. And that's just, I totally forgot about that until now for some reason. That reminds me, I got used and lost like a tiny film camera. Like it's as long as my index finger. I love the li- the tiny, tiny digital and film cameras. Mm. So I would use this digital camera. I'm trying to remember what brand it was at the time, just to take still black and white shots. And then I could plug it into my Apple IIc and bring those images in as like, you know, whatever the resolution of the Apple II was at the time. It was like 211 by, by 180 or something ridiculous. So we can actually have real images in the games and the programs I was writing at the time in basic. So it was a big thrill back then. (laughs) Yeah. I think the earliest digital camera that I know of is the Game Boy camera. (laughs) Oh yeah. Very similar to that as far as quality. Yeah. I saw somebody recently like hook theirs up to a Raspberry Pi or something so that they could print Game Boy camera photos to their computer. I thought, oh, that sounds cool. I would never go through that much work, but it sounds cool. There's an iPhone app that creates similar imagery to that. So it looks somewhere between a Game Boy and the, you know, the original Mac kind of pixelated digital images. So you can take your images and 
filter them through that and then post them on your socials or whatever it is you youngsters do. Yeah, speaking of things youngsters do, my impression was up until this point that Alex made all of his memes in CodePen. Like I thought anytime he needed to do something with the photo <laughs> or an image. I mean, that's true. I do. Yeah. I do. I do a lot of things in CodePen like that. That is a fair assumption. I will whip out some CSS and make something like that. So you have like a template with a spot for an image and then like a space for like an overlay for text and stuff like that. Is that how it works? That would be smart. I should actually set one of those up and then like have it already have like the drop shadow you need on the text so that it's like always, always correct. That's a great idea. I'm going to do that now. There you go. I should make web components so that you can, (laughs) it'll just be like, okay, here's the text at the top and the text at the bottom. And then it'll be like, put an image in, here's the text at the top, text at the bottom, and it'll just be like, okay, cool, deal with it. Yeah, I mean, you just set that up for our our episode images, and it wasn't a headache at all, so I'm sure you got this. It only took a couple of days, it's fine. Um, Yeah, I'm thinking speed is not an issue if if you're using that, though. The goal is always, what is the worst way you can implement this possible? That's platonic ideal. What's the most overly complicated way that you can engineer this? It's not necessarily the worst way that you could implement this. It's always the most, the most complicated, useless way of implementing it. Well, the worst way. That's kind of how I write stuff myself. So I, I mess around with, I'm not a big proponent of Vue. I would say I'm very much a Vue newbie, but I do a bit of geeking out on the computer other than technical writing. You know, I, I like to write shell scripts and I'm self-taught. So that means... My stuff is definitely not optimized and it goes probably the longest possible way to do a thing. You know, instead of storing something in a variable, it's dumping a file to the hard drive and then looking at that file and then, you know, running it through various commands to get the output I need kind of thing. I mean, that is the Unix way, is it not? Like you just chain a bunch of commands together and make it do a thing. I believe that is the Unix philosophy. Unless writing shell scripts is the same as writing JavaScript, where if I copy and paste stuff from Stack Overflow, I've written JavaScript. I have not written any shell scripts. I've only copied and pasted. There is another podcast that I listened to. They had a competition one year between the three podcasters. I know. I know. I'm awful. Ubuntu Brute. (laughs) (laughs) I think it was the Ubuntu podcast. But they, for as like a, a special episode, they each put together a game, but they had to use like bash to make a game. Sure. Like the entire game had to be written in bash. One of them was like, I've made a thing. It's a self playing MMO, but it's networked. So like you can actually like run several versions of it on the same computer and they'll all play together. Right. Like, so like it was doing like network stuff in bash. And then like another one was like, some sort of text mud type thing where like go north, go west or something like that, I think. Mud meaning like a multi-user dungeon or whatever. Yeah, yeah, multi-user dungeon. And the third guy's like, so I've made a bullet hell shooter that has Xbox controller support. So you can sit there with your Xbox controller and play a bash game. And he demos it and it was so fast and so clean. I was, everybody was just like, what have you done? <laughs> That's how I learned if then statements, you know, so we're going back to Applesoft 
basic in the late 80s. But I'm a big fan of interactive fiction, so text adventure type stuff, which the online version was MUDs, multi-user dungeons. And a lot of the programs I wrote as a kid were essentially text adventures. You know, if this happens, then show this kind of thing. And I still love it to this day. There's actually a coding language. I don't know if it's technically a coding language or not. There's a language out there that you can write stuff in called Inform, I-N-F-O-R-M. I believe the latest version is seven or eight, but this thing is old. It's essentially made for writing text adventures or interactive fiction. If you like that sort of stuff and you're into coding or hacking, it's worth checking out. I'm not sure if there's a better package out there these days, but last time I used this thing was probably like 2009 or so, but it's very interesting. Yeah. And I know that there's like frameworks and stuff to do that in other languages. I've never, I didn't realize that someone had made an entire language just to do that. So that's really cool. I think there's a couple. There's one that's like based on Vue or built in Vue. Like I think Twine. Twine has some kind of Vue mm. relationship. And if we want to be pedantic about languages, I believe it's programming languages that people get like particular and gatekeepy about. But like coding languages, I think they care less. We were talking about like older cameras and technology and stuff. And Ellen Corbez, she posted. They? They? I don't know. They posted a while back a video where they were talking about using this digital camera. And so it starts off pretty normal. Like, how do you get photos from your camera onto your phone? Right. Like, this is sort of the concept. And they were like, oh, okay, it's really simple. Like, first, you know, you do the thing and you take a couple of photos and like takes a couple of selfies and then it's like, all right. And then the next thing that you do is that you remove the memory card and presses a button and a floppy disk comes out. Of course, it's out of the camera. And then like, puts in a USB floppy drive into the phone and like sticks the floppy in as like, and then you transfer the content once it's acknowledged that the disc exists and then you just transfer the pictures off. It's really easy. It's a, it's a great, you just pull out this big memory card and just do that. It's the funniest video. <laughs> it's so fantastic. I have questions. <laughs> Is there a record scratch when the floppy disc, it's probably a, a no, 1.44 no. meg disc, right? Yeah. It is gloriously serious uh-huh. and at the same time, like, ridiculous. It is brilliant. I'm trying to find the tweet that it's in. It is the USB floppy drive self-powered? It can't be. I mean, it's USB-based, so yeah, it, it has enough power to power a floppy drive. From the phone that it's plugging into? Wow. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the power requirements are for a floppy drive. I guess they're not that high. I'm still impressed that I can plug my Apple Pencil into the iPad or my iPhone and have it charge in like 20 minutes. I don't want to think about that, Ben. That sounds so awful. It's like an iPhone lollipop or something. It's definitely a design issue. So I have an Apple Pencil 1.0. And in order to charge them, you pop the eraser off the pencil and it's got a lightning, a male lightning adapter. Do we still call them male and female? It's the one that you plug into the other thing. So it needs to be plugged into either a device or an adapter, which plugs into a cord, which plugs into a power supply. So not great. It's kind of like that Apple mouse that had the the charging port on the bottom. I'm an Apple nerd, definitely. I'm part of the cult of Apple, but I will gladly admit that there have been some missteps over the years. Yeah, I know some people say like it charges really fast or whatever, so it doesn't matter, but I have definitely 
had those moments where I've needed to use my MX Master plugged in. So I'm glad that it doesn't have the thing on the bottom. Yeah. Plus, if I'm on a plane, for example, or in a, in a situation where I'm sitting with my iPad in my lap and I've got an Apple Pencil sticking out the end of it and there's children or pets around, which is often the case, you're just worried that somebody's going to come out of nowhere and snap and that's it. So it's definitely precarious when you're charging the thing. Yeah. Somebody I know has an iPad and an, the Apple Pencil 2. And I had I had not had the opportunity to use an Apple Pencil on an iPad before. And so, like, they let me play with it. Only on a piece of paper? <laughs> they let me play with their iPad and their Apple Pencil. And I kind of want an iPad and an Apple Pencil now, so... The Apple Pencil is a very slick piece of hardware, I think. It's it's definitely a, you know, a stylus, but there's so much more to it than that. It's got pressure sensitivity in the tip. I don't know how much pressure sensitivity, but it knows if you're lightly pressing, pressing hard, et cetera, et cetera. And it knows if it's tilted as well. So just because of that, you know, it can act more like a pencil. So if you're tilting on that side, the texture changes to something that's more appropriate, depending on the software you're using. So... It's very impressive to hold and to play with. And I mean, that's kind of how Apple's stuff is. You know, as soon as you touch the thing, you want it. And they're they're very good at that. Yeah, they're very good at that. I don't know. I've got to say, we've talked about my weak fingers before. <laughs> no product has made me feel as frail as the Apple Pencil. Like, I tried it in the store and I was like, I don't like it. It was the first edition. I was like, maybe I'll like the second edition. The pencil is just so hard. I feel like when I'm holding it, my bones hurt and I don't even hold the pencil that hard. And then like the tip not depressing, even though with like traditional or like, you know, normal pens and pencils, I like to have a really hard pencil and a really smooth piece of paper. Somehow with the Apple pencil, it's like really off putting. So I had to add this like huge cushy grip to mine. It's called the Plus Ergo. Somebody recommended it. And I was like, I don't love it, but the pencil itself is so hard that I can't I can't use it. Whereas like with Samsung's products, since they use Wacom technology, I can have a lot of custom styluses and stuff or styli. So I have like this Stetler pencil looking one that I really like. It feels exactly like a real pencil. And so for me, having that depressing stylus that has like a slight rubbery tip to add a little bit of friction is much a much better experience. It's an interesting balance as far as the texture of holding the thing in your hands and the weight of the thing and the, the temperature, I suppose, because it is kind of cool to the touch. It's definitely different than a pencil or a pen or a brush. And the fact that you're pressing down on glass when you're drawing is definitely different than obviously paper or canvas or even a Wacom tablet is kind of, I don't know what their material is. It's, it's more plasticky or rubbery or something, right? So it's an interesting balance that they have to hit as far as, you know, all these things. I am not a connoisseur of <laughs> writing implements on screens and stuff. So it was all, it's all new to me. Clearly, I have a lot to discover about this. I think it's made the Apple Pencil or maybe the one that you're using, Tess, has made styluses more accessible than they used to be. I mean, the early tablets or rather the early styluses, you had like a pressure sensitive thing that you were drawing or writing on, but it did not have a screen behind it. So you had to look up at the screen as you were, you know, your hand is moving down there drawing or painting or whatever. And so there was kind of a disconnect 
And I think it might've been Cintiq or someone like them that came up with, you know, the actual screen that you used the stylus on. So you got real time results under, you know, the point where your tool was touching the, the glass. So it made it easier to follow along and kind of learn this stuff, I think. Yeah. And like we've always, or had for a long time, like the primitive kind of pen inputs in like a cash register, like the credit card screen or like a Nintendo DS. I will say though, I am kind of like resentful that Apple seems to get all the fanfare for this stylus stuff when what's his name was Steve Jobs was so outspoken about how like you don't need a stylus or whatever. That's like really backwards. And when Samsung came out with a note, a lot of people were like, who needs this giant phone? And now they're like the stylus company. And I'm like, that's not fair. <laughs> so <laughs> I just learned through this podcast, I can use this pencil with my drawing tablets too. So I'm like, that's great. Anyway, <laughs> I love this stylus so much. Now, when we play drawing games, you'll be unstoppable. Hey, I've been using my trackpad because you complained it's unfair. And you still do better than all of us. <laughs> Are you saying the Apple Pencil is compatible with non-Apple devices, or are you talking about a different stylus? No, I'm talking about the Statler, the Norris Pencil that looks like they're like real-world pencils. It uses Wacom technology, and a lot of the styli are interchangeable, but not always. But when I was grabbing the link for our show notes, I saw them using it on a, like a Cintiq, so I was like, oh, maybe it'll work with my tablet too. I would like to call attention to the fact that she said styli because I don't think I've ever heard that spoken for. And I'm sure it's correct because you're good at those sorts of things. But let's just give you some massive points for that. The only one that I'm confident about is like octopus technically would not be octopi because the stylus styli, I think stylus, yeah, that's Latin because I do remember that from class specifically. You have like the tabula and the stylus, but I could be completely wrong though. The octopus, though, that's like a Greek word. So if we were going to pluralize it as if it were a Greek word, which we usually don't do, then it would be octopodes. And these are these sorts of things that technical writers have memorized. We know all of these rules in our heads at all times. <laughs> we never have to consult anything. We just know you them. You were just testing that, me. Yeah, that's how we get hired in the first place. Not true at all. Not true at all. That's like your whiteboarding test. They go, <laughs> okay, here's a list of words, make them plural. And what is the group of them called? And from memory on a whiteboard, you have to write all of them down. Also, here's a sentence, diagram it out. <laughs> yes. Yes. No, I would say my technical language skills, not my technical writing skills, but like knowing which parts of a sentence are which, the subject and the predicate, that's about as far as I can get, I think. I do a lot of writing on gut, at least for first draft, you know, what sounds correct to say, and then I'll use a tool to help me make sure that it's the right sentence structure. Yeah, I mean, I feel like you probably know better than most of us anyway. Me? Yeah. I bet a lot of people are like, what's a predicate? Uh, see, now you're calling me I mean, I wasn't going to ask, but... <laughs> The subject is what the sentence is about, and the predicate is the other part. That's about all I remember. <laughs> <laughs> I know nouns, verbs, and adjectives. Thank you, Mad Libs. And if we all know what Mad Libs are, I'll be very happy. But that's, again, a product of, or, you know, a thing from my past growing up in the 80s. So they still make them. I'm learning German because my niece speaks German. She's bilingual. And so I'm trying to, like, learn German so that I can talk to my niece. I'm discovering that I may actually have to like 
find somewhere to study this like sentence structure stuff because in German you have weak nouns and like the word that you use in front of it to describe it changes based on whether or not it's a weak noun or something. It is so confusing when you don't understand sentence structure. <laughs> wow. I've never heard of that before. Yeah. Generally, I, you know, when I try to speak Spanish or read Spanish or French, it's male versus female nouns and trying to know which one is which. Like, I still don't understand why motorcycle is feminine. I mean, why not? But I don't know why some things are feminine and some things are not. You know, like tennis ball will be feminine and I don't know, snake will be masculine or it's what who made up these rules somebody a long time ago <laughs> they're not the same across romance languages which i didn't know and was tough for me when i tried to switch from french to spanish and i was like what's going on yeah german at least has like the neutral so you have like male female neutral and there are things that you're like why is that neutral because it's like girl is medchen but you put das in front of it, which is neutral. And it's like, what? Instead of feminine? Yeah, like, yeah, okay. And it's apparently because the ending makes it neutral. I don't know. I had to go talk to my brother-in-law and, and my sister and be like, why? Just enforcing all of your gender norms on German. Okay, Alex. I'm trying to learn the language and I'm trying to understand. Sounds like your nouns aren't the only thing that's weak. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> A lot of things. And then there's formal versus informal, you know, like in, in Japanese, when you're first meeting somebody versus somebody you know, you, you say things differently because of formality. So it's interesting. I think there's a lot of languages. English is like the one language where you don't have that, e really. English is just everything mashed together. <laughs> well, we do. It's just unspoken rules and everybody has their own set of rules and so if you write best to somebody they might be really offended or they might be really pleased <laughs> that's why you go with your gut nobody signed off an email to me with cheers i will block you oh why <laughs> why not I don't know. I just, I don't like that sign off. I'm now going to be signing all of our emails as cheers. Because <laughs> <laughs> you email me so often. I'm gonna now. <laughs> I forgot what we were talking about before we got into German. Oh, right. Word endings. Yeah. So like my big word nerd moment was when I finally tried to watch that like curse word show that everybody loved on Netflix. I couldn't get past the first episode. I think Nicolas Cage was in it and they were talking about the word and one of the experts that they have on to talk about like the etymology and things, I was like, oh, she's the person that does all of the like word videos on MiriamWebster.com. It's actually from her that I learned about the Octopodes thing. So I was like, <laughs> I never thought in my life I would be in a position where I recognize somebody from Miriam Webster, but there it is. I thought you were going to say it was Grammar Girl or, you know, one of those more famous internet word nerds. Grammar Girl is someone I haven't heard about in a while. I think she's still going. She's been around for like 10, 15 years, probably. I don't think she's a girl anymore, though. I mean, I think she's probably a woman. She probably wasn't when she started. Right. <laughs> right. See, we enjoy watching British game shows. So there's one game show called Countdown. We like the comedy version of it, which is eight out of 10 cats does countdown. Anyway, Susie Dent is the dictionary corner lady on that show. And she is hilarious. She's bloody brilliant, I would say. She's very fast. 
Very smart. I like keeping up with her Twitter account because she'll occasionally post the word of the day and it'll be something fantastic. Yeah, I love 8 out of 10 cats. Sorry, 8 out of 10 cats does countdown. So there was initially two shows. There was countdown, which is the word show. And then the 8 out of 10 cats was more like math numbers stuff, right? And at some point, someone said, why don't we merge these two things together? And it's, it's just, it's fantastic. I don't think I could watch a show just about trying to see how many ways you could make a number out of smaller numbers. But when it's, when it's combined with a, a geeky word show, it works. Yeah. I was really sorry to hear about what happens to her brother, though. Like, it can't be easy to go from being like an up-and-coming district attorney to having half your face burned off by acid and turning into a supervillain. Oh, okay. There's a joke there. Very very funny. I was being very respectful and quiet. Super clever. Super clever. Harvey Dent reference there. Yes. Batman. Yeah. It is unfortunate. So going back to writing, a lot of us haven't worked with technical writers before and or may never work with technical writers. So for the people who may work with technical writers in the future, do you have any tips on how they can work well together or things that they can do to communicate more effectively with technical writers? Sure. At least from my point of view, it's not like uh, I speak at technical writing conferences or I hang out with technical writers other than the people I work with. But technical writers like myself, we like working with other people, especially smart people that know the product very well, which are most of the people I reach out to for more information. So it's a fun part of the job to learn about how a thing works. We very much enjoy working with developers and techie people and smart people and learning about products and things from their point of view. So it's a requirement. It's part of the job. You know, I've heard technical writers being called, you know, jack of all trades, master of none. I don't know. That kind of seems to apply in my case. I'd say I'm a techie guy. I'm a geeky guy. And I like knowing lots of things about lots of things, but I'm not really an expert on any of those individual things that I'm writing about at work. So as far as Tips on working with technical writers, be prepared to give them lots of information because we're going to kind of act like a sponge and soak up as much about a thing as we can. And then generally, I tend to gather a whole bunch of information, squirrel myself away and write about things for a bit and then come back and say, is this right? So that's kind of my process. I do a lot of information gathering. I write a thing and then I go back to the smart person or smart people and say, is this correct? And how can we make it better? You don't have to be a good writer or good with words or good with any language in particular in order to work with a technical writer. You just have to know about the thing that you know about. So don't be shy. Don't worry about, you know, stumbling over certain things. It's okay. It's our job to gather the information and ask the questions and make you feel comfortable about the thing that you know about. Other things to note is don't feed them after midnight mm. and don't get them wet, uh, I would say, is sort of... Yeah, the, but midnight where, right? Yeah. And and there's moisture everywhere. So, how wet? <laughs> I know? believe that the moisture, the problem there is that it voids the warranty, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Right. They're not rated for water resistance, so... <laughs> 
And now I'm, I'm thinking about the time I couldn't get my Furby to shut up. So I put it in a drawer to leave it in the darkness and it kept talking. <laughs> it's like, it's <laughs> dark in here. Yeah. Please You're let me down. out. La, la. Yeah. I got to say the things that Furby artists are doing today are just incredible. There's like large Furbies, giant Furbies. I've seen a lot of weird Furby things. I'm just impressed that there is such a thing as a Furby artist. So congrats to all you Furby artists out there. Yeah, I think somebody made like a Furby organ. (laughs) Yes. So you can play a keyboard and like each of them is a single note and like that. And it's that's somewhere between terrifying and hilarious. I'm not sure where it is both. Yes, it's both. I don't know what to call them besides Furby artists. You know, I shared one weird Furby in my art class server. And since then, it's basically become a like the worst Furby thing you've seen competition. So <laughs> <laughs> like imagine Alex's project of Furbies. Without spoiling any part of the plot, there's an animated film on Netflix called The Mitchells versus The Machines. And I'm not part of it, but I feel like I need to mention it. And there is a scene with a... Furby or a bunch of Furbies, that is probably the best part of the movie. So it's a great flick. If you haven't seen it, check it out. The Mitchells versus the Machines on Netflix. Very funny. Okay, we'll have to do that. I think we talked about it before because I mentioned that one of my screenwriting teachers was talking about make sure that if you're writing a script for an animated thing, like it needs to be animated. And I was like, well, what's a good example of a script that you could tell needed to be animated? It's like, well, I haven't seen the script, but the Mitchells versus the Machines is like a perfect movie. Mm. I found it like very overly stimulating for me. Like I get why people like it, but there's so many things going on on the screen that I was so exhausted after I watched it. It's definitely, uh, I call them ADD movies. I have ADD myself, so I'm allowed to say that, I think. But yeah, movies where (laughs) there's just so much going on, you can't not be entertained or stimulated by watching it. So very fun. Yeah, I did wonder if it would be appealing in that way. Yeah. So for people who don't, have a technical writer what are your tips on how to make sure that your documentation works okay hmm this is forcing me to think in a way i don't normally think because i am the technical writer that's usually there i hope you have your own checks to make sure the docs work okay yeah i mean well you probably want to as far as consistency, you probably want to pick the person who is maybe the best writer in your group or the best at gathering things and putting them together. Maybe not the best at writing English or whatever language you're writing in. Esperanto. Esperanto. Just to have a consistent voice or, you know, tone. Well, I'd say if this person is you who's listening, you want to be able to take the instructions and boil them down to as simple steps as possible, especially if you're writing about steps, you know, a simple description as possible. You want to make it so that when somebody looks at the page or the screen with this content on it, that they don't immediately cringe or scream or run away or not ever want to look at it again. So it needs to be accessible, as as accessible as possible, visually and complexity wise, I guess. You don't want to have a giant block of text on the screen or just all pictures on the screen. You want to have combinations somewhere in between the two. I don't know if that's helpful. I mean, it kind of reminds me of like an exercise that like my writing teachers would give me. And sometimes I had to walk through with programming students where you like give instructions on how to make a sandwich or something. I think there's some dad on YouTube also that will have his kids write instructions. 
and he'll follow them exactly. And like, they never, they never work out. So I'm sure there's a balance between too much and, and too little detail. Yeah. Try not to overthink it. You might think you have the best and clearest instructions in the world, but you're never going to hit hundred percent on that audience. There's always going to be someone that misunderstands what you wrote. So if you really are writing for an audience or trying to get somebody to understand something or do something, then you probably want to test those steps out on other people. So listen to feedback. Don't take anything personally. Write as clearly and concisely as possible and be open to improving it, I guess. Yeah, I guess documentation is like one of those weird areas where you don't actually own your writing. Like it's not going to say by Ben. Yeah, unless you're, you know, the developer and the writer at the same time. And that's sometimes the case. Usually technical writers are writing about something that somebody else made and another person is an expert in. And then, a, you know, a third group of people are going to be using the thing. So you're trying to bridge the people that know about a thing with the people that don't know about a thing but need to know about it. So making relationships happen. The last part of my three-part question is, let's say that you don't have a technical writer and you also don't want to write the docs yourself. How would you advocate for hiring a technical writer? Like, what could you say like they would add to the team? Well, we make stuff better. We make stuff easier to understand. I'd say it's not everybody necessarily needs a technical writer, but if you're trying to convey information to as wide an audience as possible, it's good to hire somebody who's good with words. If you have a technical product or any kind of product that needs to be understood by humans, I think is where a technical writer would, would fit in there. For example, I mean, most people know what an Ikea catalog looks like. And if you don't, you can hit the Googles, but it's instructional steps presented in a simple way that people can understand. It's mostly pictures, but that is technical writing you know, taking a concept and explaining it simply to the largest possible audience. So if people didn't have those steps, would they be able to assemble the furniture? Probably, but they might mash their thumbs more with a hammer or get angry at their significant others <laughs> more. It's an important role to have as far as, again, bridging the gap between understanding a product and explaining it to your audience. And if you're selling a product or a service, you probably need clarity there. What you're saying is, is that in order to, if you don't have a technical writer and you want a technical writer hired, mm. write really bad docs and be like, well, you know, if we had a technical writer, these would be a lot better. So maybe we should hire one. I mean, if that's the bar, I think a lot of people really want a technical writer and have not been getting one. <laughs> yeah, there's always <laughs> examples of bad writing or bad ways to convey information. I guess at some point, someone has to make the business decision that we have to look more professional and be able to better explain our stuff to our audience. So you could always hire a contractor, technical writer, or, you know, there's resources online for temporary technical writers. But I think once you bring a technical writer into the fold and if, you know, they're competent and they can explain your product and make things look better and be more understood... I think you'll want one by your side forever, he said with a glimmer in his eye. And with that, Ben, where can people find you on the internet? I'm glad you asked, Alex. I am available on the interwebs. To be honest, I don't do too much social media stuff. I am on Twitter. On Twitter, I am blips and bleeps, all one word, obviously. 
I mostly use Twitter for information searching and reading news and things like that. But you could DM me on there. Maybe keeping up with your favorite podcasts about Vue. Keeping up with my favorite podcasts. And podcasts about Vue. Podcast. The only one. Well, I was also like plugging cat. Enjoy the Vue cats. Oh, yeah. And your favorite <laughs> Vue cats. And podcasters. Yeah. So now it is time to move on to this week's picks. Tessa, would you like to go first? Wow, what an honor to be chosen first. Yeah, so my first pick, it's this book that I've seen the title from time to time. And I'm like, oh, you know, that does sound interesting. But I feel like I would be upset if I read a book with this title, because then I probably would want the thing that the, the title said, and I don't have kids. So I haven't read it. But a friend of mine told me like, it's great for everybody to read. And she especially likes the audiobook. So I was like, okay, I'll check it out. And the book is the book you wish your parents had read, and your children will be glad that you did by Philippa Perry. And so it's a book about parent-child communication. I think I recommended another communication book a few episodes ago. So this so far seems very similar. It talks a lot about how experiences you have in early childhood can affect the way that you behave in adulthood, especially with your children. And it's kind of interesting because it also alludes to when experiences get coded into our genes, which can be passed on that's like a completely different book. It's interesting. I've already had a couple of like, wow moments and then completely forgotten them. So I can't share them today. If I remember, I'll, I'll share them. And my other pick is completely different. It's the Jet 90 cordless stick vacuum. So for most of the year, I wanted to get the Dyson V15 Plus if I could, even though I feel like it's a very extravagant purchase, specifically because it has an attachment for vacuuming hair. And we've talked on the show about me having hair. And also recently my brush broke. So now I need to get a new brush and I barely use it. So hair is a problem. I had a discount for this vacuum that has like also, it comes with this bin thing that like, shoomp, like it sucks out all the stuff from the vacuum. So I haven't tried that yet. But I've tried the vacuum for dusting. I'm like, I don't really have any big vacuum needs. I don't like carpet. So I've used it mostly for that. And then also I used it to vacuum the fleece in my cages and like it gets all the fur and stuff out of that. So it's been good enough for my use. It comes with a million attachments. I've heard it's lighter than the Dyson. So yeah, if you need a vacuum, Samsung has a lot of sales. So that might be something worth checking out if you don't have carpet. But I've heard it works okay on carpet too. This is an upright, like a standard plug-in type of vacuum. It's not a handheld unit, right? It's a handheld stick vacuum. It also comes with this attachment that you can bend to different angles. So I like that too. So I can like vacuum the top of my bookshelves and my fan and stuff like that. Cool. Wow. Okay, cool. Ben, do you have any picks for us? I've got a bunch of stuff I'd like to share. TV this week, myself and my girlfriend have been binging what we do in the shadows season three. It's a comedy. It's on Hulu. It's about vampires. It's very funny. It's a spinoff of the movie of the same name by Taika Waititi and Jermaine Clement, I believe. So it's great if you like funny stuff, if you like vampires. It's definitely not for kids. There's some gross stuff in there, but it is funny. So highly recommend that. Speaking of spooky stuff, we recently watched Old, the movie by M. Night Shyamalan that has been in theaters for, oh gosh, probably two months now. Is this the one on the islands? It is a, well, it's a secluded beach at a resort, yes. So the premise is whoever's on this beach ages incredibly fast. And OMG, what do we do about that? So 
I'm not normally a horror movie guy, but this was, I thought it had lots of good twists and unexpected moments. And even though the premise kind of sounds silly, it was still very entertaining for me. So do recommend. I guess I'm a comic book guy. I love reading comic books in my spare time. And the one I've been sucked into in the last two weeks is called Murder Falcon, (laughs) which is a great title because it's ridiculous to say and recommend on a podcast. But Murder Falcon by Daniel Warren is the book. There's only eight parts to this, so eight issues. It's essentially about a guy who's down on his luck. He used to be the lead singer of a metal band and bad things have happened and he's trying to get his life back together. And then all of a sudden, a large man slash falcon comes through from another dimension called the heavy and they have to fight evil by shredding on his guitar basically so it's it's equal parts i don't know bill and ted's and heavy metal stuff and kind of superhero adventure ridiculousness and it's it's fantastic so check that out i'm also an anime guy i am definitely not an otaku but i try to be you know so i enjoy anime but i'm not an expert by any means and otaku just means like somebody that's like really, really into something, yes. right? Or like, I guess here, really into anime. Right. And it used to have quite negative connotations, I think, but it's since been more acceptable to use. It's kind of like a geek, I guess, in Japanese. But. Yeah. Now that all the anime fans have grown up. Right, right. So I probably have, I don't know, 20 or so different anime on my list that I'm, you know, intending to check out at any given time. This one was recommended by a YouTuber glass reflection he picked this one because it was his i guess his favorite comfort anime of the year and so i started checking this out at the beginning of the pandemic and i'm slowly working my way through it but i really enjoy it it's called yuru camp in japanese y-u-r-u camp and it's about a bunch of high school girls that go camping and that's about it and it sounds weird to explain yes it does yep it does. It's comedy slice of life. It's just fun to watch. And it really is comfort anime, I guess. It's just relaxing and kind of silly. So <laughs> recommend it. And the one other thing I had on my list, uh, I just started reading it this week. It's a book called Wildwood by Colin Malloy. This is a young adult, middle grade, I guess, novel. It's about a girl whose baby brother gets kidnapped by crows and taken to this kind of mysterious wild woods in the portland oregon area so fantasy adventure kind of stuff with a spooky twist i'm going on vacation to portland in the next two weeks so i decided i would read this book and also uh, it's being made into a movie by the movie studio Leica, who make Coraline and paranorman and box trolls and kubo and the two strings and those stop motion flicks this is their next movie so i'm reading the novel and it's quite good so far so yeah check it out I think they use Blender, right? Another open source free software. They are stop motion. I don't know if Blender supports. I think Blender is mostly CGI. Oh, that's right. I mean, they do have CGI elements in their films. They're not strict, only hands-on stop motion puppets. So maybe. Not sure. Cool. All right. Well, this week, my pick is I picked up the... Razer Kishi game controller. It is a game controller for your mobile phone. I've been doing a lot with Xbox Game Pass Ultimate, where you can stream games from the cloud. 
And so I've been wanting a smaller screen so that if my wife is doing something with the large screen, I can sit next to her and still play video games and we can have quality us time where we're not doing something together. So I picked up this controller and it has been working lovely. It is very comfortable and I look forward to continue using it until the Steam Deck comes out because I'm definitely getting one of those. (laughs) So you're using it with your phone, like your phone is on your lap and you're using the game. No, no. Like the way that it works is you plug your phone into it and then it wraps around your phone. Uh So it's like holding a switch where the controllers are on either side of the screen, but it's for your phone. So you can like play video games and the, and it's not Bluetooth. It's actually like connecting through the charging port and controlling it that way. So there's an iPhone version and an Android version. There may be one that's actually for like the iPad if you want to use your iPad, like the the way that it grips onto it is a little bit bigger so that that'll work. The games are streaming over your Wi-Fi from your Xbox. Yeah, you can stream from your Xbox. You can stream just sort of like in the cloud. I also have Steam Link set up because I have a couple of gaming rigs. And so I, if there is a specific PC game that I want to play on my PC, but I'm not at my PC, I can do that. And I'm not playing, just so that we're all clear, I'm not playing games that require you to have like millisecond latency reaction times. I don't play games like that because... Did people say latency? He did say latency. I was going to ask about that. Yes. Is that the correct way? I have no idea, but that's the way I say it. I've only heard latency. I think it depends on where you're from. I'm from the South. We all, we have, we have more Southern A's here. So latency is... But you say route, right? Not root, or do you say root? But it depends. And depends. On depends. That. Depends. Yeah. It's all the pecan logs. They're influencing your brain. Yeah. Yeah. If you're going somewhere, you are taking a route. If you are trying to do something in view where you need to know what path you're on, it's a route. Mm. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. So maybe. Yep. Mm. I guess it's like playing a switch if you don't have your switch connected to your TV, because then it's not like playing the switch. Right. So those are my picks for the week. Last thing, Ben, what headphones are you wearing and do you like them? Thank you for asking, Alex. I am wearing the Bose QuietComfort 15s. So these are the wired noise canceling model. These are old. These are 2011, but they still work great. When I bought them, they were about 300 bucks. It was a splurge purchase. I'm not normally an expensive headphone dude. I usually use what comes with the thing that I'm listening to, but they are quiet. They are comfortable and I've been using them for 10 years and I love them. So highly recommend it. They have a Bluetooth version now that is supposed to be just as good, a little bit more expensive. But yeah. Do they sit on your ears or do they go over your ears? Like, is there any pressure on your head? Are you sensitive to headphones? They're the cup kind. So that is over the ear, right? On the ear is kind of flat. Is that correct? Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, on the ears, like touching your yeah. ear. No, they completely encompass my ears. I don't have any issues with that. They don't pinch my ears. My ears don't get too hot or anything. So they're super comfy like that. And you said something else. I can't remember what the other part of the question was. Do they pressure on the top of your head? A little bit, but not much. It's got some good leather padding with some foam underneath it. And I haven't had to replace that. I have replaced the cups once, maybe twice over 10 years. You know, the actual cups on the phones themselves, but it was cheap and they work great. So cool. Awesome. 
Well, that's all for this week's episode. If you aren't following us on Twitter, head on over and find us at EnjoyTheViewCast. If you like pictures of cats, you can also follow us at EnjoyTheViewCats. Be sure to subscribe to the show on your podcatcher of choice. And if you have time, leave a review because it really helps us get up there and have better visibility. Finally, the first rule of View Club is be sure to tell at least five or six colleagues about View Club. Thank you for listening. And remember, enjoy the view. Are we View Club? Is the show View Club? Yes. Okay. okay. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Bye.